0: I'm Ted Burnham.
1: And I'm Jane Palmer. This is How on Earth? The show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June seventeenth, two 2014.
0: Coming up, we'll speak with author Murray Carpenter about some of the ways that caffeine can help us, both in sport and in life. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Some people spend years trying to recreate a favorite dish for which they don't have the recipe. For me, it's the mustard sauce from a Japanese hibachi restaurant in my hometown. For some NASA scientists, it's the atmosphere of Saturn's moon, Titan. The dense, cold air on Titan is full of complex organic molecules called hydrocarbons, which give the moon's atmosphere a distinct orange-brown haze. Thanks to the Cassini spacecraft that's orbiting Saturn, researchers can use spectral analysis to identify many of the molecules in Titan's atmosphere. But the spectral data also suggested a mystery molecule, one of hundreds of thousands of possible combinations of hydrogen, carbon, and other gases. By mixing some of those gases in a laboratory, along with others like nitrogen, methane, and benzene, the researchers attempted to recreate the conditions on Titan that would allow hydrocarbons like the mystery molecule to form. The key ingredient? Nitrogen. The closest spectral match to that mystery molecule was from a polycyclic aromatic nitrogen heterocycle, a nitrogen-rich subgroup of hydrocarbons. The lab-grown molecule wasn't an exact spectral match for the one on Titan, so there must be other missing ingredients. Just like my mustard sauce needed raw garlic, and then some cream, and a pinch of sugar, and it still doesn't taste quite like the restaurant's version. But as each hidden ingredient is uncovered, the recipe gets closer and closer to perfect. The NASA research is published online in the journal Icarus. For the mustard sauce, it definitely needs some sesame paste, and maybe a little ginger? Hmm. If you hear voices,
1: it might be your conscience reminding you that you shouldn't have eaten that cookie this morning, or you could be one of the 1% of schizophrenics worldwide. For schizophrenics, the voices are anything but benign, most frequently telling people that they're terrible. But a new study may have found the culprit of these unkind utterances. The researchers looked at mice that had a piece of a chromosome removed, the same chromosome that is damaged in some human schizophrenics. In those mice, the region of the brain that processes sound has an excess of dopamine receptors, causing the mice to respond abnormally to loud noises. Too many receptors means the nerve cells get overstimulated by dopamine and other chemicals. Antipsychotic drugs that control the auditory hallucinations in human schizophrenics target these same dopamine receptors to kind of turn down the volume. So it looks like the researchers have found a genetic origin of the voices. By isolating the gene responsible, scientists may be able to produce new and better drugs for schizophrenia. The study was published in the journal Science.
0: Colorado Springs is 800 miles from the nearest ocean. Not the most shark-infested place in the world, but it's the headquarters of Fin's Attached Marine Research and Conservation, a nonprofit dedicated to understanding and protecting sharks. The organization's founder, Dr. Alex Antoniou, is speaking at Café Scientifique in Denver this Thursday. As apex predators, sharks are vital to ocean ecosystems, and Dr. Antoniou will talk about what makes sharks so special and what can be done to support the world's shark populations. The event begins at 6 p.m. Thursday at Brooklyn's near the Pepsi Center in Denver. Café Sci events are always free and open to the public. Details at CaféSciColorado.org.
1: the rocks so straight up with cream, you know, I'm a fiend for that a caffeine, caffeine. caffeine.
2: Makes you happy
1: You're yeah. tuned into How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer. Chances are you've already had a cup of coffee this morning, or if you're like me, it was a cup of tea. Or maybe if you're truly hedonistic, you started the day with a bar of chocolate. Either way, if any of these options are part of your daily routine, you'd be one of the 90% of the people in this country that regularly consumes caffeine, America's drug of choice. Here to talk to us today is Murray Carpenter, author of the book Caffeinated, how our daily habit helps, hurts, and hooks us. Although he covers the history and culture of caffeine in this book, he's specifically going to be talking about the science of caffeine and how this powerful drug affects our cognition and physical health. In particular, for all you runners, cyclists, and swimmers out there, maybe a few of you in Boulder, he's going to discuss how the right dose of caffeine can help an athlete's performance. Apparently, for you runners who can run a 40-minute 10k without caffeine, ingesting the drug knock up to 72 seconds off your time. That could put you at least 100 places higher in the Boulder Boulder. Welcome to the show, Murray.
2: Hi, thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you. Now, I believe you were a student at CU, weren't you? Was it in the 80s? How did yes. you first get interested in caffeine?
2: Well, it actually, it, it dates back to uh, to Brillig Works, the, the, uh, the coffee shop that was then on the hill. Uh, I, I lived in a house uh, on the hill, and Brillig Works was between our house and uh, campus. And that's where I started drinking coffee, and uh, I, I loved coffee. I noticed how it helped me uh, get amped up for studying, and, and uh, I became intrigued. I was a psychology major, and I started looking into it a little bit.
1: Right. And so you, were, you have a, book, a chapter in your book called The Athlete's Favorite Drug. Um, were you an athlete?
2: Yes, I was a bike racer, and, and I raced for the, uh, the, the first year that CU had a bike team. I raced on that team. And uh, even back then, people knew that, uh, that, that caffeine could give you a little bit of a, a, a boost for, for athletic events.
1: Well, right, interesting. But, you know, I, I'm never too convinced. Like, is it like alcohol? Like, when I drink, I think I'm really clever and witty, um, but it's just a perceptual thing. And maybe when you drink caffeine, you think you're sort of invincible and have a lot of energy. But really, that's just a perception thing. Or does it actually help athletes?
2: That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, because because certainly when you have a good strong cup of coffee, you feel like you could set the world afire, and you may be a little stronger. No, it, it definitely is. I mean, there there have been uh, numerous controlled, uh, placebo controlled studies that that uh, show that for a, a trained athlete, if you were if you and I were to race like an hour foot race or an hour bike race one day with a moderate dose of caffeine, one day without. For most people, you would see between a one to three percent improvement, which is to say a one to three percent of reduction in your time. And as you, you pointed out in the intro, that that could be a, a significant number of places in, in the boulder boulder or, or I mean, it, it would be the winning margin in, in many races.
1: Right. And is this just in endurance events? It's not like for sprinters. It doesn't help sprinters or anything like that.
2: It actually does help sprinters, and this is one of the crazy things. I mean, uh, originally, for like back when I was racing bikes, uh, people had the sense that most of what caffeine was doing was sparing glycogen, uh, allowing you to retain the, the glycogen in your muscles for later in an event when you really could use it. And uh, this, this, there, there is some glycogen-sparing effect of caffeine, but that doesn't seem to be the primary mechanism. And one of the interesting things about sprinters is that new research suggests that part of what caffeine is doing is actually improving a calcium pump in, inside your muscles. It, it's, it's enhancing the release of calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and this enables each muscular c- contraction to be slightly more forceful. So, yeah, I mean, even sprinters uh, should, should be able to get some boost out of it.
1: Oh, wow, I never knew that. And so how exactly does it help an endurance athlete? Can you, can you kind of talk me through that?
2: Well, so the, the big thing it's doing is uh, it, it's the same function that it has uh, in, in the rest of us mentally. And, and uh, people have known this for a long time and are still trying to understand exactly how it works. But it's that it blocks a neurotransmitter called adenosine. And adenosine, among other things, gives the brain the signal that we're tired uh, caffeine looks sufficiently like adenosine to be able to lodge in, in the neuroreceptors and block adenosine from uh, performing its function. And so, among other things, this is going to help you to, to feel, uh, you know, less tired and less fatigued and more energetic. So that, that's a big part of what caffeine is doing. And, and uh, I covered some triathletes in, in uh, the book at, at the, uh, the Ironman in Kona. And they noted that particularly in the later stages of the race, uh, when they're losing focus and losing energy, then they really notice caffeine's health at that point.
1: Right. So that brings me to another question. Do you, Is the best way to use it is to kind of titrate your caffeine? So, you know, to take it like, I mean, when I used to race, I used to just, you know, two hours before a race, I'd have two good strong cups of English tea. And that will, you know, that will fuel you through any decent 10K. But... You know, is it better for the longer races to be just, you know, eating caffeinated jelly beans throughout the race or something like that, and keep it kind of titrated so that you don't have the like the peak and then the trough?
2: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It is it is better to to do uh, to do the latter and and to to moderate your consumption throughout the race. The the uh, and and I'm the same way as you. You know, when when I used to race bikes, I knew you know I could have a, a strong cup of coffee like an hour before a race and. And that was it. But now with all of these new goos and gels and a remarkable number of them, if not most, are caffeinated, an athlete can really uh, choose exactly how caffeinated they want to be throughout a race. And it it probably is better, I mean, it certainly is better to stay in that that sweet spot, which is probably uh, three to six milligrams per kilo of, of an athlete's body weight.
1: Three to six kilograms. So, say we've got like a 160 pound triathlete guy. How much coffee or caffeine are we really talking about?
2: Yeah, so that would probably be uh, three milligrams for, per kilo for him, would probably be about 220 uh, milligrams of caffeine. So, uh, 10 to 12 to 16 ounce cup of coffee, depending on the strength of the coffee. So, that, you know, at the low end, it's what a moderate coffee drinker uh, would be using. At the high end, it's, you know, it can be a pretty, pretty strong dose. I mean, it would be, for him, you know, maybe 24 ounces of coffee. Uh, but this, is, it, it, this also leads to one of the interesting things about caffeine is, is the challenges of uh, regulating it as a controlled substance for athletes because the, the perfect amount for enhancing your performance also happens to be the amount that, you know, a moderate coffee drinker might consume daily.
1: Uh, that brings me to my other question for the second half of our show. So you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer, and we're talking to Murray Carpenter, author of the book Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps, Hurts, and Hooks Us. So, you know, I mean, I, that brings me to, if it's helping performance, what's the difference between ingesting caffeine and doping? Seriously.
2: Yeah, uh, Boy, that's another great question, and it really depends on who you ask. So I guess the easiest definition is if it's legal, it's not doping, right? Uh, some people argue ethically, and I did talk to a sports physiologist uh, for the book who, who argues that if you're taking this substance, uh, this drug, uh, the drug caffeine, in order to to deliberately gain an edge over another athlete, which is, of course, what we're all doing when we're trying to optimize our performance in a, in a competitive event, you know, then that is doping. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I take the other view, which is that it's legal. Uh, it, most people are using the substance daily uh, whether or not to improve their uh, athletic performance. And so I, I don't think it's doping, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful question, and it, it raises a lot of interesting, I think, uh, ethical issues.
1: It's a tricky one, isn't it? And I know it brought me to like, what about if we do the effective with caffeine as carbo loading? So in, you know, how you wouldn't have carbohydrates a couple of weeks before vase or five days before vase and then you binge on them the night before. Can you like not have any caffeine for a couple of weeks? Take some on the day of the event and a small amount, which won't put you over the edge, will actually make you, sa- uh, make you quite caffeinated. So you can play it yeah. like that.
2: Well, that's, there's been some a fair amount of research on this very issue. So if you're any caffeine user, anyone who uses caffeine regularly, quickly develops a partial tolerance to it, which is to say that, you know, your next cup of coffee won't affect you as strongly as the, cup of co- the first cup of coffee you had when you were caffeine naive. So, but the research is really mixed on this in terms of athletes. I talked to some trainers and some athletes who, who really swear by uh... going cold turkey and then having a stronger caffeine effect the day of the race some other research does suggest though that there, there's not a huge difference um, wh- whether whether you're uh, abstaining from caffeine or whether you're taking the moderate dose the, the day of the race i think a lot of people feel to be on the safe side if they want to optimize their performance then they're going to be caffeine free in the, the, the week say going up to the event
1: interesting and um, <laughs> But you know, my thing is, doesn't caffeine make you dehydrated?
2: This is one of the persistent myths that that does not seem to really uh, really be true. I mean, uh, the, there's been some great research out of the University of Connecticut uh, looking at athletes specifically and uh, in, in different conditions of, of heat and uh, athletic performance, and they, the, the caffeine does not seem to dehydrate people, and and uh, I, this this is this is uh, it's counterintuitive because most of us ha- have this experience that you have coffee and then you feel like you need to pee and we blame it on the coffee. Uh, it It's probably not quite that simple.
1: Right. Interesting. So that's a myth busted. And um, what about stomach or digest- digestion problems?
2: Yeah, some people are very sensitive to to caffeine and or coffee uh disrupting their 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 stomach or gi tract just just giving them stomach problems and some of the athletes who i talk to who stay away from caffeine uh specifically attributed it, it to this this problem so yeah some people some people are very sensitive to that and it's just it, this is an individual thing
1: right and it, it that definitely tell us back to some people it seems that some people can drink like a lot of caffeine and have no trouble sleeping and for others, the mere whiff and they can't sleep. I mean why why this difference in sensitivity? and can you give me some idea of the scale of it? You know, how much say, like a cup of coffee could affect you know a hundred and eighty pound man and the equivalent you know or a, a certain woman i you
2: know. um, I'm so glad you brought that up because this this is huge and uh, and it, and it really bears on this what when, when I mentioned, for example, the three to six uh, milligrams per kilo, this is going to vary from person to person. And caffeine, uh, caffeine's effects vary so dramatically from person to person. And, and I, I think I was skeptical going into my reporting uh, from the uh, about the, the people you'd hear saying, oh, I had a cup of decaf and it kept me up all night. But there are people who are just very sensitive to caffeine. A lot of this has to do with genetics. Some of us are just genetically predisposed to be uh, either sensitive to caffeine or, on the other hand, there are some people who are uh, sort of, and almost immune to caffeine's effects. And you know, uh, I think we all know people like this who, who say, yeah, I can drink a strong cup of coffee and sleep like a baby. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a huge range, uh, individual range in how caffeine affects people.
1: And it affects men and women differently, doesn't it? I think I saw on your Twitter feed you cited a study where, it, you know, there's new research to say that men and women are affected differently by caffeine.
2: Yeah, and this is, this is, this is new research, and, and that's specifically looking at physical effects in teens, and uh, this is uh, this is an area I would say that that we definitely need more research in, but there there are other a couple of uh, sort of tangential items here. one is that of course uh, it, it, it affects you it, it will have a different effect depending on your size it's weight dependent so you know if a small woman and a large man are drinking coffee together, then the man will need more. Uh, will we'll need more coffee to have the same effect. and there there are other interesting things that are somewhat uh, gender related. Uh, one of those is that women on birth control pills tend to metabolize caffeine much more slowly than people who are not. So uh, they will the caffeine will have almost twice as strong of an effect in the woman who's on birth control p- pills. So that's a a, a gender related uh, caffeine sensitivity issue.
1: Right. So what would you say is the main? Negative effect of caffeine. We've talked about the positive benefits. What's the main negative effect?
2: Well, I think there are two. The one is is really well known and and well understood, and uh, we sort of alluded to this earlier. But sleep disruption. And you know, some people again can it, it won't bother their sleep at all. Others it it it, it uh, very acutely disrupts their sleep. I think for other people, they're not quite as aware that caffeine can, can subtly affect the later later stages of your sleep. So even if you have a small amount of caffeine in the morning, uh, if researchers hooked you up to one of those um, uh, motion detectors, they would see that you were getting some disruption in your later hours of your sleep. So I think the reason that this is important is there, that there are a lot of people who consume caffeine daily who don't sleep well but don't really see the association. And, you know, in those cases, I would say it's worth uh you know experimenting to see if if reducing or eliminating caffeine from your diet improves your sleep and it it won't help everyone but the other big issue is is anxiety i mean uh caffeine can can really uh trigger acute anxiety uh, in people who are susceptible to this and can even trigger panic attacks full blown panic attacks in people with panic disorder
1: yes i read that in your book but the thing that made me laugh in your book was it was people who were drinking I, I guess you kind of cited the extreme versions, but, you know, there was a couple of people in the military who were drinking 16 cups of coffee a day, and then they were convinced it had nothing to do with their anxiety at all. So it, that had to make me laugh. I mean, you know, I'd be anxious if I drank half a cup of coffee. So,
2: <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, it's funny. And I, I think, of course, yeah, those are the extreme examples, and, and they're, they're, I use them to make the point. But the, the very first uh, call-in show I did after the, bu- the book came out, Uh, we had a a call from a listener who said that she had had sleep problems and anxiety issues until she was in her 50s and quit drinking coffee and she had never associated the two now you know most people would make that connection but i think it's worth noting that some people don't and and it it, it can have uh significant effects on some people
1: interesting so just a final question to wrap up had any caffeine today
2: Yes, I'm uh, on my second cup of uh, Colombian coffee, and it's delicious.
1: And have you ever tried giving up caffeine, or are you hooked?
2: I am hooked. You know, I did give it up while I was writing the chapter on withdrawal. I was, I was writing that chapter, and I thought, my gosh, this sounds so horrible. It can't really be this bad. And, uh, you know, I found it was pretty bad.
1: <laughs> oh, well, a perfect advertisement for your book, you see. If it was that easy, then no one would be hooked on it, right? That's right. So. Thank you, Murray. So that was Murray Carpenter, author of the book, Caffeinated, How Our Daily Habit Helps Hurts and Hooks Us.
2: Thank you, Jane. Thank you.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced mostly by my co-host, Jane Palmer, with a little help from me. And our executive producer is Joel Parker.
1: Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Patty Larkin.
0: Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 373 447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jane Palmer.
0: And I'm Ted Burnham.